0: Triad Warriors. I am your host, Annie Randall, and this is a safe space for real talk regarding all things Jesus, mental health, and of course, your relationship with food. Welcome back to the second season of Triad Warriors, the podcast more than food. On this season, we are talking about the many factors that can influence and or cause disordered eating. On today's episode, I will be going solo and I will be providing an introduction for the second half of this season. So far this season, we've spent a lot of time talking about the personal and individual factors involved in eating disorder pathology. However, eating disorders and disordered eating are also a public issue, not just a personal trouble, which is why the entire second half of this season will be devoted to sociological and environmental factors. Such factors can include family dynamics, socioeconomic status, racism, sexism, ableism, the other isms, food insecurity, strict gender roles, media influences, peer influences, environments that focus on weight and shape, diet culture, weight stigma, and much more. In some of the other episodes this season, we will be talking about athletics, diet culture, the patriarchy, sexism, food insecurity, and socioeconomic status. To do so, I will have several more guests on the show, each of which hold a unique perspective in an area of expertise. In this episode, however, we will mostly be focusing on family dynamics and peer influences or peer pressures. In addition, we will be covering some basic basic concepts and theories regarding sociology and why exactly eating disorders are a social justice issue. But before we get started, I just want to give you a quick reminder to hit that subscribe button and leave a rating and or review if you have found this podcast to be helpful in any way thus far. I greatly appreciate your support and I'm just so thankful to have the opportunity to share my passions with you all. So thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the show. Aside from a rating and or review which on its own would be immensely helpful to me, other ways to support me the show and Triad Warriors as a whole include following me on my Instagram. My handle is Triad Warriors on Instagram and or signing up for my Patreon. Currently on my Patreon, I have two offerings, each with unique benefits. The link for that can be found in the description of this episode and from the link in my Instagram bio. And as always, if you have any questions or ideas for the show, feel free to shoot me a DM or email me at hello at anniebethcompany.com. Again, I greatly appreciate each and every one of you who have been listening to the show, and I'm so excited for the many, many other episodes that are to come. And on that note, let's go ahead and get started with today's episode. Ultimately, we are social beings. As humans, we are designed to exist in relationships. Our longing to belong is hardwired into our souls and our DNA. In fact, we even share mirror neurons, which allow us to notice and match the emotions of those around us without even thinking about it. As humans, we thrive on social interaction. So much so that the number one indicator of longevity is the presence of healthy and supportive relationships within our lives. In fact, studies show that those who hold strong social connections tend to live longer regardless of other health behaviors. So basically, you are far better off eating ice cream with your friends than you are eating a salad at home alone. I'm just saying. Anyhow, social connections matter, and what we think, believe, and do is largely influenced by the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of people around us. Basically, society gives shape to our attitudes and behaviors, and this is the study of sociology. Essentially, sociology is the scientific study of social behavior and social institutions. Sociology recognizes that we are not just individual people, although each of us do hold layers of uniqueness, but we are also social creatures living within a society comprised by other social creatures. And while our individual differences do matter and should be celebrated, many of these differences are influenced by society and the social backgrounds from which we developed. In fact, most of our individual thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors are the complex cumulation of both nature and nurture, pre-wiring and upbringing and experience. And this is how culture and societies are built. Essentially, culture is the collection of values, beliefs, behaviors, attitudes, and assumptions that are shaped by a group of people. Similarly, societies are defined as a community or a group of people who hold common traditions, institutions, and interests. With that said, culture and society are not the same thing, but both influence the social framework through which we live. Cultures through influence and unification, and societies through pressure and construction. And sociology seeks to understand these influences. Moreover, sociology seeks to look beyond the general assumptions of a society in order to find the many layers of meaning that lie beneath the social fabric. This is known as the debunking motif, which asserts that things are not always what they seem, and social reality always consists of alternative layers of understanding. Furthermore, sociology seeks to identify and understand the social forces that are affecting individual behaviors and attitudes. This is done by looking at the horizontal and vertical structures of society. Essentially, societies are structured in two ways, horizontally and vertically. Horizontal structures describe the social relationships that exist between communities. In addition, horizontal structures describe the social and physical characteristics of said communities. So for example, when, compar- when comparing urban, suburban, and rural social structures, the horizontal social structure may be defined by living proximity, and perhaps how this distance between living spaces influences social interaction, feelings of connectedness, and family slash community dynamics. Vertical structures, on the other hand, refer to what most identify as social inequality. Vertical structures describe the way in which a society has organized individuals into levels of hierarchy and social status. This organization can occur on the basis of wealth, power race ethnicity gender body size ability sexual orientation etc the effects of which can be detrimental to those who are pushed into the margins and this is where social problems are birthed social problems are rooted in the dysfunction and discrimination that can occur within both horizontal and vertical structures of a society And we will be discussing a handful of these problems as they pertain to relationships with food and bodies this season. But first, I want to explain the differences between personal problems and public issues. Personal problems are the problems that affect individual lives due to individual reasons and or failures. In America, that's a personal problem tends to be the default view of sociological issues. In fact, Americans are more likely to see things like poverty, crime, divorce, unemployment, and eating disorders as personal issues. And there definitely are personal decisions and individual influences within all of these issues. However, personal problems can be public issues, especially when they are happening at mass scale. And we could benefit the whole system by recognizing and addressing the faults and imperfections of societal structures, rather than simply blaming the victim, which brings us to the definition for public issues essentially public issues are problems that affect many individuals due to problems within the social structure of a society and these issues can and do include things such as poverty crime divorce unemployment and eating disorders as well This is because the political, economic, and social institutions and influences of a society influence the lives of the individuals who live in said society. Take, for example, mass incarceration or food insecurity or police brutality or the fact that one in three women globally will experience sexual abuse. At the root of these things racism, classism, sexism, and misogyny. Likewise, when we begin to peel back the layers of disordered eating, we begin to see a similar pattern emerge. Deeply rooted social, political, and economic messaging and influences that have led to a widespread problem across the country and the world. Eating disorders are a public issue, and recognizing this fact has been one of the most eye-opening, liberating, and infuriating lessons that I've ever learned. And the learning does not stop. I mean, if nearly 10% of the U.S. population is struggling with a diagnosable eating disorder, then evidently we have a public problem. If Black, Indigenous, and people of color are half as likely to be diagnosed with or treated for an eating disorder, yet Black teenagers are 50% more likely to exhibit bulimic behaviors then evidently we have a public problem. If gay men are seven times more likely to report binge eating than heterosexual men and transgender college students are four times as likely as cisgender students to struggle with disordered eating, then we have a public problem. If those in larger bodies are half as likely to be diagnosed with an eating disorder, but less than 6% of people with eating disorders are actually underweight, then we have a public problem. And if 60% of eating disorder cases are female and up to 57% of adolescent girls engage in disordered eating behaviors, then we have a public problem. There are far more statistics that I could share, but you get what I'm putting down. Eating disorders are a public issue, and at the root lies forces of sexism, misogyny, racism, classism, ableism, homophobia, weight stigma, and the many, many other systems of oppression and discrimination, all of which assert that some bodies are better than other bodies, and that our bodies are a determinant of and a prerequisite for worth value and love and so this is why we are spending the whole second half of this season on the social and environmental factors that can cause and or influence disordered eating basically it's time that we focus on the social conditions that account for individual struggle and difficulty specifically in terms of food with that said, we are going to cover two primary perspectives for study. First, micro sociology, which explores the influences of families in smaller groups. And second, macro sociology, which explores social structures, institutions, and larger influences. We will get into the macro perspectives on the next four episodes, but for now, let's start with the micro perspectives, specifically looking at the influences of family, peers, and in part social media, though we will get into that more on a future episode. So first up, family. Now, I know the word family can provoke many different emotions, especially when we are talking about family through the lens of food. Family and food can provoke a whole complicated mess of guilt, shame, anxiety, confusion, joy, tradition, laughter, comfort, and more. Our families have a profound impact on the ways in which we experience the world, and the ways in which we experience food is no exception. Ultimately, our family defines our first interactions with food, and that matters. That sticks. Maybe in your family of origin, food was celebration. Food was tradition, and gathering gathering around a big, delicious meal was a regular occurrence. Or perhaps food was reward. You celebrated every win with a big bowl of ice cream or a trip to the pizza parlor. But at the same time, food was also punishment, and not eating your vegetables was a sure way to find yourself in timeout, or worse, without dessert. Or maybe in your family of origin, food was hard to come by. Meals were sporadic, and the only consistent meal you ate was the government paid lunch served at school. Food was a source of fear, worry, anxiety, and perhaps even shame. Or maybe food was a source of confusion. You loved the sugary, pre-packaged snacks that the other kids brought to school, but all you were allowed to eat was the apple that your mom put in your backpack. Food was something that apparently could make you, quote, fat, which by the sound of the way your parents talked about their own bodies was most definitely a bad thing. Food was something you enjoyed, but also something that you learned to fear, which made it extremely difficult for you to trust yourself and your body, even to this day. Family and food can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and exploring these dynamics is essential in building a healthier relationship with food. Why? Because how food and bodies were talked about and experienced in your family of origin has most definitely impacted the way in which you think, behave, and feel about food and bodies today. And this makes sense considering the fact that one of the primary functions of family is to socialize and teach children. Your earliest experiences with food and bodies matter, and families can and do play a role in the development and the maintenance of disordered eating. Now, let me be clear, this is not to say that parents and families are at fault for their children's struggles. This is not to blame parents or even families for the development of their child's eating disorder. And if you are a parent, this is not to scare or fear monger you. Just because family dynamics are one of the factors that play a role in the development of disordered eating, it doesn't mean that family roles are the only factor in the development of disordered eating furthermore family dynamics are not always a factor in the development of disordered eating in fact a child could be raised in an intuitive and weight inclusive environment and still develop disordered eating at some point in their lifetime i am not currently a parent but i do know that no parent is perfect and that all a parent can do is their best with what they know Nevertheless, parent and family discussions about food and bodies do also matter. And one of the best things that we can do as current or future parents is to work on our own relationships with food and bodies so that we can change the narrative for future generations. With that said, there is a lot we can talk about regarding family dynamics and how these discussions and experiences can influence one's relationship with food. But I want to specifically focus on the importance of meal times, primarily because there's a great body of research available on this topic. Basically, mealtime is considered to be an integral component in the development of eating behaviors, both as a child and for later on in life. In fact, research has shown that a parent's positive presence during mealtime is associated with a decreased likelihood of eating past fullness or skipping breakfast in children and in later on in life. Furthermore, having regular family meals is associated with improved meal frequency and an increased intake of necessary nutrients. Moreover, and as it relates to today's discussion, increased family meal frequency is associated with a decreased likelihood of disordered eating behaviors such as binge eating, purging, excessive weight loss, extreme weight control behaviors, so on and so forth. Basically, family meals play an essential role in both family unity and the development of eating behaviors, whether that be normal behavior or disordered behavior in fact conflict avoidance negative food and body comments mealtime stress greater levels of rigidity impaired parent child communication and other unhelpful mealtime interactions are all linked to increased rates of disordered eating behaviors on the flip side though a positive mealtime atmosphere is associated with less extreme weight control behaviors in both girls and boys. Essentially, mealtime becomes the framework from which a child learns how to interact with food and bodies. So if this framework is negative, stressful, and unstable, then the child will be more likely to experience difficulty in his or her eating later on. And maybe this is something you yourself experienced as a child. Furthermore, weight teasing in adolescence from both parents and peers, but more so parents, is connected to internalized weight bias in adulthood. And here is where peer and family influences collide. We will talk more about diet culture and weight stigma next week, but I wanted to briefly touch on the influence of weight bias today. Essentially, children and adults who are classified as, quote, obese, according to the BMI. Note, I did put this in quotes because it's not a word that I prefer to use due to the harm that this word has caused. But those who are classified in this... category, according to the BMI, are more likely to suffer from perceptions of weight stigmatization. These perceptions can be due to perceived cl- critical comments about weight and shape, can be due to weight teasing, and discrimination, all of which can occur in various settings, for example, within healthcare organizations, educational ex- institutions, from peers, in the media, and from family members. Basically, weight stigma is a normalized form of discrimination, and it's pretty effed up. With that said, weight teasing from family members, specifically parents, is especially harmful. And perceived weight teasing is identified as a risk factor for the onset of binge eating disorder. Moreover, weight teasing by family members is shown to have the most significant influence on emotional, cognitive, and physical development, leading to feelings of incompetence and self-hatred by the child. And unfortunately, weight teasing by family members is not uncommon. In fact, 28.7% of adolescent girls and 16.1% of adolescent boys report being teased by a family member and 62% of those who are classified as quote overweight remember negative weight and eating comments by parents during childhood, 44% by mothers, and 34% by fathers. Weight bias internalization has explanatory power of the psychopathology of disordered eating, and the key here is that implicit stigmatizing attitudes are more explanatory of disorder than explicitly stated comments and attitudes. So what do we do? Well, if you are someone who has experienced weight stigmatization in your life or your upbringing, then I highly recommend that you seek help from a mental health professional who specializes in in eating disorders and who operates from a health at every size perspective. Doing so can help you to heal the deep wounds that came out of your upbringing, and it can help to liberate you from the repercussions of weight bias internalization freedom and healing are possible and if you are a parent then you have an opportunity to help pave way for a better future now i do not have a child so this advice is not coming from experience but rather from research i do want to be clear on that i realize that feeding a child can be profoundly more difficult in real life than on paper Furthermore, there are many professionals who can help you to raise an intuitive eater probably far better than I can because they have done it. And some of these include on Instagram at kids.nutritionist and at happilyfed. So definitely go check them out if you are currently a parent. With that said, I do not want to just leave you hanging without an alternative. So here are some of the most common tips for raising an intuitive eater. Number one, Work on healing your own relationship with food and bodies. This one is so huge because again, as we've discussed, your relationship with food and body will definitely impact your child's. Number two, give children the opportunity to make their own food decisions and allow them to learn from those decisions without judgment. If you remember from a few episodes back, the curiosity cycle is so much more valuable than the judgment cycle. Number three, remember your roles in mealtime. Parents are to decide what, when, and where food is eaten children then decide what and how much is eaten from what they are served in addition it's important to provide kids with a selection of foods so a protein a fat a carb some sort of produce and a fun food so that they can start exploring different flavors and textures Number four, refrain from creating food rules such as you need to eat this in order to eat that, or this food is good and this food is bad. Doing so teaches children that they cannot make their own decisions and that they they shouldn't be listening to their own bodies, which is exactly what we don't want. We want kids to focus on internal cues and we want kids to learn how to trust their bodies. Number five, eat with your child and do not focus on body weight or size. Kids are growing and their bodies will change. Instead, focus on healthy habits such as frequent regular meals, daily movement, sleep, play, drinking enough water, so on and so forth. And finally, remember that picky eating is normal. Most kids do go through a picky eating phase. You can try to introduce new foods. You can talk about their flavors, their colors, textures, and the benefits to the body. But do not force them to eat it. It can take up to seven times of trying a new food to like it. And our taste buds actually regenerate and change every seven years. So I promise you it may change in the future. With that said, if you are concerned about your child's eating, then that is valid, and you can always talk to your pediatrician about PICA or any other underlying concerns. Ultimately, you do not have to be perfect in your relationship with food and your body, but showing your child that you are trying to have a healthy and positive relationship with food and your body can and will make a big difference, and you can change generational patterns. So finally, let's finish off today's episode with a brief discussion on what to do if you are struggling in your relationship with food and your body due to these family influences and childhood upbringing, at least in part, eating disorders, disordered eating, all that is complex. First of all, I want to take a moment to recognize and acknowledge the weight of the pain that can be and has been caused by comments from family members. Weight stigmatization and weight teasing is shown to result in feelings of shame, self-hatred, anxiety, and depression, regardless of who the perpetrator is. However, healing from the words that our family members have used against us is a whole nother thing words hurt and words have the power to build us up or break us down words have the power to bless us or curse us and the impact of even a single word can be profound furthermore behaviors actions and attitudes all have the power to wound us on deep levels especially when those actions and behaviors do not match the words that are being used against us After all, love is an action and how someone treats us is far more telling than how someone speaks to us. Regardless of how your pain and wounds have come about. They are valid and that hurt is something that you have been carrying with you and I want to help you to release that pain and heal. So here are a few tips on how to heal from weight stigma and or negative food and body comments that have been directed towards you or even others in your life. So number one, set boundaries. Now I know boundaries are a hot topic right now and setting boundaries can be a lot more complicated in practice than in theory. And at the same time, boundaries are so important, especially when working to heal your relationship with food and body. So set boundaries with your friends and family members. What are the conversations and comments that you are not willing to engage with? Make that clear. It's your job to set the boundary, and then it's their job to respect that boundary. Number two, begin treating your body with kindness and respect. You do not have to love your body. In fact, that's not even the goal here. As we will talk about in the next season, the goal is not that you will never experience discomfort in your body again. That would be impossible because you are a human sure we would love to decrease the amount of discomfort that you feel in your body but mostly we want you to be reconnected to your body we want you to begin honoring your body's needs which includes eating and resting number three Wear clothing that fits. Clothing was made to fit you not you to fit the clothing. If you are wearing tight and uncomfortable clothing all the time then you will feel uncomfortable. You will become hyper aware of certain areas which will not be helpful in your healing. So make sure you are wearing clothing that makes you feel good and confident. Number four, detoxify your social media feed. Now this is the only kind of detox that I will ever suggest but it is certainly an important one. If we are absorbing fat phobic diet laden content all day then we cannot possibly expect ourselves to feel good about ourselves. So unfollow accounts that promote intentional weight loss, sell diets, and or uh, spread weight stigma. Instead follow Hayes, intuitive eating and anti-diet accounts, as well as accounts that have nothing to do with food, fitness, or even bodies. Accounts that inspire you in other areas of life. And finally, work with a therapist or other mental health professional in order to heal the deeper levels of pain and hurt that has been caused to you. Healing is not easy, nor is it quick, but it is 100% worth it and on that note we are just about wrapped up for this week because we've already covered a lot we've discussed the basics of sociology we discussed family dynamics and peer influences and we briefly discussed healing the point of all this eating disorders are a public issue and social influences have a profound impact on the ways in which we relate to food and bodies Social influences have a profound impact on the increasing rates of disordered eating and body dissatisfaction. We will dive into this more over the next several weeks, but for now, I want to reiterate. If you are struggling in your relationship with food and your body, then please reach out for help. There are a variety of different professionals who can help, including therapists, social workers, dietitians, nutritional therapists, doctors, and much more. Just because we live in a society that encourages disordered eating, that doesn't mean you have to stay stuck. So stay tuned for next week's episode on diet culture, body image, and movement, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. I am Annie Randall, this is Triad Warriors, and food freedom starts here.